this morning to the book of Romans, studying the book of Romans on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and just wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you today. A single verse this morning, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul declaring by the Spirit of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for every jot, every tittle, every verse, every thought, every precept of your word and how thankful we are on a daily basis personally, but then weekly, Lord, in the various services at church and certainly on the Sunday morning to come in and uh, under the weight and the authority and the washing and the glory of your word. All week long we're inundated with our own goofy thoughts and all of the philosophies and passing fads of uh, people today that are going on in the world and how wonderful it is to come to your word that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth that is something strong and sure to build our lives upon, and we need to know that there's some place in the world to do that, and we're thankful that you and your word are that place. We pray that you would open this passage up to us, help us to know more about you as a result of that, and then, Lord, for us to grow in our awe of you and our worship of you as a result. Bless us now as we continue to worship you and the study of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I am working on something. I have a stopwatch up here, and... uh, Not that it ever has any effect on me at all, but um, it does help me to know. Anyway, it's not functioning, so Lord help us all, but I have to just disregard it here try and fix it for the next service. As we come and continue our very early moments in the uh, journey through this uh, epistle to the Romans, we've examined Paul's introduction of his letter to the church at Rome in uh, verses 1 through 17, and now we move into formally the uh, main body of the letter. We remember that the theme of the book that was given to us in verses 16 and 17, and the theme of the book is the gospel. And that is God's plan of salvation for sinful man. And how it is that this book answers the deeply profound question of how can a holy God qualify an unholy person for the holiness of heaven and remain holy in doing so. And that was no easy task for the Lord. We want to also remember the five great words that kind of encapsulate uh, the book of Romans. And the first word is the word condemnation, which uh, is kind of an umbrella over chapters one through three, where Paul reveals every single human being to be guilty before God and in need of salvation. 
And then in chapters uh, four and five, uh, under the banner of justification, and then the great word sanctification, uh, which characterizes chapters six through eight, then vindication, chapters nine through 11, where Paul brings forth God's right to save both Jew and Gentile uh, alike as he chooses, and then chapters 12 through 16, the great word application. And it is important this to kind of have something as a means of having a bird's eye view uh, of the book to have a macro. And it's important because it helps us uh, keep from becoming absolutely lost in the micro of the book. The book of Romans is so deep theologically and practically. It is so dense theologically and uh, so rich in detail that it's easy to get lost in it. And to begin to look at it as just this book that's filled with all of these choice verses uh, in it from one end to the other and lose sight of its, its overall focus and the whole case that Paul builds by the Spirit of God uh, within the book. And so uh, to, to uh, lose sight of the big picture and those five great words help us to know uh, where we are and not to get lost uh, in the study of the book. This morning we come to the first great division of the book uh, encapsulated in the single word condemnation that constitutes chapters 1 uh, through 3. And in this section of the book, the Apostle Paul uh, does something significant. He establishes the guilt of every single human being uh, before God. And thus that each and every one of us uh, are deserving of his judgment. In these chapters, what you want to do is picture exactly what Paul is doing. Picture some court of law. Uh, and uh, here you have a judge that is hearing a case and you have a prosecuting attorney, uh, which is the Apostle Paul. And uh, here the Apostle Paul is in that courtroom and he is making uh, this case of our guilt before God and the fact that we do deserve judgment as a result of our sin and our guilt. And the Apostle Paul treats it so masterfully. I mean, he, he brings uh, layer upon layer upon layer as he lays all of this out until by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, he will have laid an absolutely watertight case for uh, the guilt of both Jew and Gentile before God. And why does uh, Paul uh, begin a treatise on salvation in exactly this way? And the reason that he does it is because if I'm not made aware of my need for salvation and, and my need for the forgiveness of sins, then why in the world would I ever pay attention to the provision for the forgiveness of my sins, even if it was offered by God? We must be made aware of our need before we will appreciate God's provision for that need. And by the time Paul gets done uh, with chapters 1 through 3, everyone will stand guilty and condemn before God. There'll be no excuses. He removes any and all of them, which is significant for us in the United States because we live in the excuse capital of the world related to sin, and uh, everyone will understand our need for a Savior and for the forgiveness of our our sins. These first three chapters uh, come, that come under the heading of condemnation, they fall really into three categories. In chapter 1, 
Paul establishes the uh, guilt of the Gentiles uh, before God. Chapter 2, he establishes the guilt of the Jews before God. Chapter 3, he establishes the guilt of the whole world, all of mankind before God. And here in chapter 1, Paul begins his case for our guilt before God uh, in a very interesting place. You notice in verse 1, he begins all of this by speaking of the wrath of God, that we need salvation, uh, not supremely from our sin, and not even supremely from hell, but supremely at the core of all of it, behind all of it, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Concerning the wrath of God, I think it's important for us to stop for a moment. You can't take anything for granted today. The subject is so neglected even within the body of Christ. But to just stop and take a moment and to realize that this thing called the wrath of God even exists. And to stop and to realize that Paul is wanting us to be aware that the wrath of God is a part of the very nature of God. The interesting thing to me about Paul as you read through the New Testament and that, that neither Paul nor God, I mean, they make any attempt to hide or to downplay or to apologize for the fact that wrath is a part of the nature of God. Uh, people love to hear about the grace of God. They love to hear about the love of God, and so do I. But many people don't like to hear about the wrath of God. But we have to ask ourselves, why do we crave reassurances about the love of God and the grace of God? And why do those reassurances mean so much to us, except that intuitively we are aware that there is a wrath side of God, there is a justice side of God, that he must judge wrongdoing, and that somehow we are guilty before him. God's grace and his love, it would have absolutely no appeal to us at all. We wouldn't care one bit about either of those things if we did not also recognize him to be both righteous and to be holy and possessing a righteous anger uh, as well. It is this, the knowledge of the wrath of God and that I deserve his judgment for my sin and the life that I've lived that makes me appreciate his love and appreciate his grace in a way that I never otherwise would. Otherwise, the grace of God and the love of God would just sit on a string in, in midair and have no foundation in anything. And to stop for a moment and to ask ourselves, why does it mean so much to us? And it means so much to us because we recognize that God is just and that there is a wrath that is a part of his justice. The Greek word that is used for God's wrath here is a very interesting one. In the Greek language, there are two principal words that are used for wrath and anger in the New Testament. The first Greek word is the word thumos. Uh, it refers to an explosive anger, the kind of anger that is very emotional. It's very volatile. It'll explode forth in a flash, and just as quick, uh, it's gone. It disappears. And we refer to this kind of person who demonstrates this kind of a wrath or anger as being hot-headed. That is not the word that is used for God's wrath here in the passage. 
The word that's used in the Greek language here of God's wrath is the word orge, and it speaks of a very, very different kind of wrath. It speaks of an indignation that rises gradually. Uh, This wrath is very settled. It is very, very controlled. Uh, It is very measured. It is firmly founded upon reason. There is absolutely no hot-headedness to it at all. God's wrath is not some purely emotional, out-of-control outburst. It is completely under control, and it is based upon reason. It is, uh, there is always a reason for its expression. It is born out of reason. The Bible teaches that God watches this world every day, every moment of the day. He watches every square inch of it, inside and outside, and he ponders, the Bible says, what it is that he sees. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. And the word ponder there means to weigh, it means to observe, to weigh mentally. He watches everything that goes on in the whole world, in the life of every single person, and he he observes it very, very closely. He weighs it within his mind. He doesn't just watch it, but he processes it uh, in his holy mind, and nothing escapes his attention. It kind of, I always view Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21 in terms of God pondering the world, and it's something like this, hmm... And it goes on concerning every single life and every circumstance and every square inch uh, of the world. And imagine what he sees as he watches this world, Uh, not as a, a human being, but as a holy, loving God. Uh, the wickedness that he observes, the rebellion against him, his commandments against his uh, son as he sees sin being committed, as he sees the victims of sin being piled up in piles that number in the hundreds of thousands and the tens of millions uh, even today, the persecution that fills the entire world of, of his children, and then to be a perfectly holy God pondering the ways of sinful man, it's going to produce an emotion in you. And, uh, and that emotion is wrath. Uh, maybe it, 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 you've noticed that uh, some people are very, very hard to please. Uh, don't nudge anyone uh, within nudging distance of you uh, this morning. Some people look at the world around us and they then challenge God. They challenge God with words that are, go something like this. Why don't you do something? Why don't you judge the wickedness in the world? Why don't you put a stop to all of the wrongdoing? And they use God's patience and long-suffering as a reason for not believing in him. And then at the other extreme, you have others who, when they hear that one day God is going to put a stop to all unrighteousness, and that one day he's going to do that in the form of his judgment and his wrath, they then use that as a reason for rejecting him. I can't believe in a God of wrath or in a God of judgment. If you've ever felt like you can't win with some people, realize that that's God's portion uh, with much of the population of the world all of the time. 
I think it's very important to understand that God's wrath comes out of his righteousness, that his anger is always a righteous anger. His anger is never expressed uh, 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 against good, but it is only expressed toward what is unrighteous. Very important to notice that the first word of verse 18 is the word for, and, the, and Paul uses that word for because it is, that is the apostle Paul deliberately tying the wrath of God back to what he's been speaking about in verses 16 and 17, and that is the gospel and the righteousness of God. In other words, he wants us to know that God's wrath is not inconsistent with the gospel. And it is not inconsistent with God's righteousness. God's wrath is always an expression of his righteousness. The fact of the matter is that God could not be righteous if he did not also experience wrath related to wrongdoing and then did not express that wrath toward wrongdoing in the form of judgment. Notice also that this wrath is described as the wrath of God. It is not described as wrath from God. Those are two entirely different things. This is described as the wrath of God. In other words, this isn't just something, merely something that God does express his wrath, something that he meets out. It is a part of him. It's personal. Uh, it is a a personal emotion with him. He feels it. Wrath is a, ver is a part of his very nature. And because it is, it is righteous and it is holy and it is loving. Again, here you have the person who rejects in, uh, the God of the Bible out of hand with a declaration. I can't believe in a God of judgment, a God who would condemn men and women and hold them responsible for the life that they have lived and, uh, and a God who would condemn them uh, then ultimately on the basis of the life that they've lived to hell. Uh, no, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. But the same person that very same person who would say that about God would never say that uh, of a judge in a courtroom or a judicial system in their nation. They would never say, I just can't believe in a judge or a judicial system that would hold someone responsible for their actions and then upon finding them guilty would throw them into prison or into jail for wrongdoing. And yet as preposterous as that position is, on a human level, we think nothing of applying it to God himself. No one rejects sporting events on the same level. No one stops watching football or basketball or baseball because refs and umpires have the authority to recognize wrongdoing and then to penalize that wrongdoing. And then to, and by throwing a flag for roughing the passer or calling a foul or uh, having the authority and then exercising the authority to declare a player to be safe or to be out. No one would say, I can't believe in a referee or an ump who would do that. If they didn't have that authority and then exercise that authority, you wouldn't have a game. 
You wouldn't have a sport. The entire thing would devolve into anarchy without the existence of laws and then the righteous enforcement of those laws. Everywhere in life, whether in our judicial system or sporting events, we honor those things. In fact, we demand that these things be in place. We consider them a necessity. We would be outraged if judges in the judicial system did not work according to law and then mete out the, uh, the righteous recompense of, of wrongdoing. Uh, and, and if they did not exercise that authority for the good and the sake of the, uh, the health of the larger whole. And yet the moment all of this gets applied to God and his universe and his laws, all of a sudden it becomes something that's absolutely intolerable in the minds of people. And it's completely irrational. It's completely irrational to make God the bad guy in any situation in which he is forced to judge as opposed to focusing on the one who has created the problem, mankind, or the individual human being, the one who's done the, the wrong. And yet, that is exactly what people so often do. And it's important to realize that it is God's righteousness that is revealed in his wrath towards sin and his judgment of it. He would not be righteous if he did not do it when justice comes into contact with righteousness, it always results in judgment. It cannot have any other uh, result. If it had a different result, that would be a completely different world and universe we would be living in, and it would be a world and universe you would not want to live uh, in. Notice Paul states it very plainly. Uh, in uh, verse 18, that God's wrath is directed against all unrighteousness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. The ungodliness refers to sins that are committed by man against God. And then unrighteousness refers to those sins that man commits against his fellow man. Well, uh, this is uh, just Paul's starting point on all of this. Next time, Lord willing, we'll examine uh, three specific things that God expresses his wrath against, and those three things are very, very interesting. Uh, they're amazingly interesting and amazingly contemporary, as I think you'll realize when we get there. But this morning, I want us just to limit our focus to the wrath of God, and not because I don't, uh, not only because I don't have the time to uh, properly develop his, his, uh, even a part of his thought that really goes through uh, verse 23 uh, here. But I, I stay upon the wrath of God this morning because I think that teaching on this subject is desperately needed. And I think that uh, the weight of this truth about God is very neglected. And I think it's important for it to sit upon our hearts and to be a part of our understanding of God. Uh, and, and I think it's healthy for it uh, to, to do so. The greatest peril facing every individual person in this world is the righteous wrath of God, the righteous judgment that our sin deserves. Yes, we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from hell, but our problem is deeper than that. We need to be saved from God's wrath. And the nation that we live in 
and it's increasingly true of the whole world, certainly very true of the Western world. There's virtually no fear of God left. There's hardly fear of God in the church. There's certainly no fear of God within uh, the culture and no fear of his wrath, absolutely no fear of his judgment. And behind this lack of fear of God and his wrath is an indescribably, massively huge uh, pride. And the fact that we have lost the consciousness of the seriousness of sin within the culture, and we have done so at our own peril. I would personally contend that the two greatest things that keep people within our culture from accepting God's gift of salvation from the consequences of their sin by putting their faith in Jesus as their personal Savior, the number one greatest thing is the failure on the part of most people to understand and then accept that they are a sinner by God's definition that they are a sinner in need of Savior. They've been less than perfect. Perfection is the righteousness that's required in heaven. And since we can't establish our own before God, we need to find out what is the salvation that God has provided. But the second great thing that keeps people, I think, in our culture from accepting God's salvation, and I think this is the greater of the two, is an absolute unwillingness to take uh, the seriousness of sin seriously. Uh, The tendency to just view sin is no big deal. I run into very, very few people who are not willing to admit that they are sinners once they understand God's definition of Uh, sin. The far harder thing to do with people then is to get people to view that condition as serious, Uh, to take sin as something that uh, is seriously, and to take it as seriously as God takes it. I think very often people think that figure that if everyone's a sinner that no, and, and nobody seems to be making such a big deal out of it, then it must be okay. But that is to fail to realize that God is real, and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks of sin. All that ultimately matters is what does God think of sin. And to God, it's a really big deal. It's so big of a deal that he sent his son into the world to pay the penalty that we deserved for our sin. And sin is such a big deal that if a person rejects that Savior and that salvation, the result will be eternal judgment for that rejection and the realization that there is nothing in between uh, those two things. I think it's very important for us to realize that as citizens of the United States, we are living in a spiritual and moral insane asylum uh, in, in, from the perspective uh, of, of heaven. Uh, perhaps is an illustration of this, perhaps you remember uh, the young American man who was caned in 1994 in Singapore uh, for vandalism, uh, for stealing uh, street signs, always a super dumb thing to do, but uh, stealing street signs 
and then uh, uh, tagging and, and spray painting vehicles. And so he was charged with theft and he was charged with uh, uh, vandalism. And, uh, and as he was caught and arrested, he was sentenced to six strokes of a cane, uh, corporal punishment upon his backside. Uh, that was the sentence that was uh, given out. There was an uproar, you might remember, in the United States of America over the brutality of such a thing. Uh, I said Canem. Uh, Canem and Canem and uh, give them all six of them. And uh, it'll be a valuable lesson. It'll be very formative for him. Obviously, somebody didn't teach him something along the way. And the sooner he learns this, the better. And this is coming from someone who is just as stupid as he was uh, at that time in life, speaking of myself. And so there was the uproar, though. Uh, over the brutality of the sentence here in the United States, the corporal punishment, let him go. He's just a young man sowing some wild oats. But as you might remember, under tremendous pressure, Singapore refused to succumb to that pressure and ended up caning the young man. And the young man learned a valuable lesson, but it was a lesson really for the whole nation. And he learned that Singapore had a higher standard for morality, and for conduct than the United States of America. And that it didn't matter what the standard was in the United States of America, that when you go somewhere else, you better know uh, that the standard is higher in that place and then live according to that higher standard in terms of, uh, of, of, of morality and conduct. And what is true uh, was true of Singapore, and that a small instance is also even truer of heaven. If a nation that we share uh, uh, with the world with today has a higher standard morally and in terms of conduct than the United States of America, and, uh, and that there are consequences for violating their standard when you are in their country, then how can it be inconceivable that there is a infinitely high standard in terms of conduct and morality and spirituality in heaven, and that we are not one day going to be, as Americans, barge our way into heaven in mass, and then somehow think that they need to put up, uh, God needs to put up with our nonsense up there. It's not going to happen, but it's the seduction, it's the pride, it's the arrogance of the culture and an arrogance that is, is willing to protect its arrogance even when it requires the attacking of the innocent, the attacking of God, and, and making ourselves the victim and making God uh, the brute in the situation, and it's all around us. Uh, recently, of course, has been in the news the three young men who, uh, who are uh, basketball players from UCLA, uh, arrested in China for shoplifting while the team was there to play a tournament. And as a result of their crimes, they stole from three stores uh, in accordance with Chinese law related to theft. Uh, they were arrested and they were facing 10 years in prison. And the only reason they ended up getting released was because of the personal intervention of the United States, uh, the president of the United States of America, the most powerful man in the world, and then various branches of our federal government. And those young men learned a valuable lesson, 
And they learned that China does not share our lenient standard for morality and personal conduct and personal responsibility, but that they hold people, their citizens, and even those that visit their nation to a much higher standard of morality and and conduct concerning theft than the United States. And again, my point is, if there are other countries in the world who hold others to a higher moral standard than we do, then is it inconceivable that God would do the same uh, thing even more? Sin is serious business, and it's serious in the eyes of God, and we're the only ones who are deluded and deceived if we lose sight of that. And if our uh, lax morality and disregard for the seriousness of wrongdoing uh, wilted uh, in the face, the standard and morality of the United States of America wilted in the face of Singaporean and Chinese law, then what will it do in the face and before the face of God himself on the day of judgment? I'm telling you, that the United States is a very dangerous place spiritually because it lulls us to sleep on the issue of the seriousness of sin. And as it lulls us to sleep on that particular issue, it keeps us from recognizing our need for a Savior and then turning to the Savior that God has provided uh, to us. I remember being a new Christian back in 1980 or so, and at the time, everybody was doing Christian concerts in those days. It was what the Holy Spirit was using to bring so many people uh, into uh, a faith in Christ. And uh, at the Calvary Chapel there in Napa, they brought in a a well-known group, and we rented a high school auditorium within the city in order to accommodate the crowd that would come, and a huge crowd uh, did come out. And uh, I was an usher at one of the rear exits of that concert. And a woman, uh, as I looked out the door as things were going on, inside the room, looked out the door, and I saw a woman was walking down the hallway, clearly worked for the school department, and as she's walking down the hallway, working a little bit late that night, I invited her in to listen to what was going on, and she asked, what was it? And I said, this is a Christian concert, and she came and she sat down for a few minutes, and uh, it was right at the moment the concert had uh, wrapped up, and the pastor had gotten up, and he began to speak about uh, the, uh, the fact that we are sinners and in need of a Savior, and that there's judgment that is uh, associated with our sin, but that God loves us, and he uh, sent a Savior into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And as she's listening to all of this, she gets up, turns on her heels, she's clearly very agitated, and then makes her way to my door and, and goes out. And as she went out, I was concerned for her, wanted to make sure she was all right. And I asked her if she was a Christian, and then she responded to me in a huff, not like that I'm not. Now, that's the statement of a person who has no consciousness of the holiness of God or the wrath of God or the seriousness of their own sin. The idea that we're free to define him uh, how we please, 
rather than to be humbled before uh, him as is proper. Now, I knew her. I knew who she was. She did not know who I was. She was the mother of of a a student that I had attended uh, high school uh, with. And she died a few years later. I remember hearing about her death. And here she is, I mean, unable like all of us to prevent her own death, and yet uh, possessing no hesitation in determining what God should be like, indeed demanding that he should conform to her image in order to gain her acceptance. And this is epidemic. Uh, This is common. This is common even within professing uh, Christianity today. Our capacity for pride is just astonishing, and I include myself in that. I mean, here we are. We sit in this room this morning, but it's true of everyone in the whole world. We can't even keep ourselves from uh, catching the common cold, and yet we're going to tell God what he ought to be like and what he ought not to be like, as if any of us are educated enough to know uh, what he should be like and shouldn't be like, and if we did fashion him into what we wanted, it would ultimately be a disaster. Nobody has the wisdom uh, to do that, and yet we do it on a personal level. In our attitude toward God, the world does by and large on a daily basis. I think about us and the frailty of mankind. I mean, if you aren't here already in life, ultimately, you come to a place where if you have a sock drawer in your dresser in your bedroom or wherever it might be, ultimately, you will put some kind of a bright light over that sock drawer. Because the day will come where you'll have a a very difficult time being able to discern between the black socks and the navy blue socks. And uh, and then the trying to spare yourself the embarrassment of what's clear to everybody else, at least with better eyes, that uh, so and so has walked out into life and come to the, you know, into the business now and they're wearing a black sock and a blue sock. Who couldn't uh, see it? And even with that bright light that we put upon the socks and we struggle over the decision for a minute or two, uh, it's still 50-50 that we're going to get out of there with a match. And yet we're going to tell God uh, what he ought to be, how he uh, 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 ought to be. What in the world are we thinking, I think, in in our dealing with God? A a movie, it's probably my favorite movie in, in the whole world, and it's Lawrence of Arabia, because it's factual. It's written right according to his, his book. There's no revisionist history in it at all. But there's a famous line as Omar Sharif, a, a, a leader of, of a, an Arab tribe, or a significant leader within an Arab tribe at the time of World War II. And then you had Peter O'Toole, who was playing uh, uh, T.E. T. Lawrence. And um, is there, T.E. Lawrence says something that is blasphemous related to God, and a famous line Omar Sharif says to him, he says, have you no fear, English? And I mean, that, that line just jumps right out of the movie, and I think the same thing. Uh, related to the world and the attitude increasingly toward God. Have you no fear, English? Uh, Have you no fear to speak about uh, God that way? 
I think that sometimes people can think that uh, all of this sounds a little bit too Old Testament, the wrath of God. I don't, like the, I don't like the wrath of God. That's why I stick to Jesus and I stick to the New Testament. Well, you might be surprised that all of this is heavily represented in the New Testament as well. John the Baptist declared of Jesus, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hebrews chapter 10, anyone who has rejected God's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has, uh, uh, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted as the blood of, his, of the covenant by which he was sacrificed a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Interestingly, the wrath, uh, uh, wrath is even associated with Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, speaking of the judgment uh, during the great tribulation, it is Jesus who breaks the seals that unleash uh, the, the wrath of God upon uh, the world during that tribulation period. And uh, as the uh, seals are broken, we're told in uh, Revelation chapter 6 that people are trying to find some kind of uh, protection from it. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, speaking of Jesus, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The wrath of the Lamb. How weird is that sentence? What do you have to do to make a lamb angry? And yet, man will do it. And man is well on his way, uh, even today. At the great white throne judgment, at the end of the age, it's described in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a great throne, uh, and I saw uh, a great white throne and him who sat on it, and from whose face the whole earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone who was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And it is Jesus himself who will oversee that judgment. I remember years ago seeing it. It was way, way, way back, kind of a Jesus movement uh, time. And, 
and uh, I was driving, and there was a bumper sticker. There were so many Jesus bumper stickers in those days. And of course, I always as a Christian would take take note of them, but I especially noted this one. Uh, Guys driving down, uh, uh, it was actually a car that was parked on the side uh, of a downtown, and the bumper sticker read, Jesus is coming. Everybody was saying that back in those days, Jesus is coming. This sticker had a little different take on it. It read, Jesus is coming, and boy, is he ticked. Uh, and uh, is not entirely accurate. It's not the whole story concerning him, uh, but it, it certainly has something important to say that I think is uh, largely lost uh, today. I love God, and I am thankful for his love, and I am thankful for his grace. God is my best friend in the whole world, but I also fear him. And I reverence him, and I respect him, and I live my life in awe of him. And it isn't something terrible to do so. It does something good in me. It does something right in me. In fact, it does something vitally important in me as a result. And it reminds me that there is this infinite gulf between who and what he is and who and what I am. And again, it reminds me of the two great truths of the universe. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am not him. And my flesh fights that every single day. And I fear ever being on the wrong side of him or being in any kind of fight that is opposed to him because I know that no one can pick a fight with God and have any hope of winning. I know uh, that if God is your problem, then only God is your answer. And God is every man's problem until he becomes our answer in putting our faith in his son. He is both our problem and our answer to our problem. And until we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, God is our problem, and that if you are not a Christian here this morning, God's wrath hangs over your life, and his anger is a righteous anger, and God loves you, and he, but he cannot ignore your sin. You must receive his forgiveness, and you must not only receive his forgiveness, but you must receive it his way, on his terms, not on your terms, and not your way. And you need to receive that forgiveness in a way that satisfies his righteous anger towards sin. And the only way that that occurs is through faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And if you've never trusted in Jesus this morning and you'd like to do so, all that is required is to simply confess your sin to God and your sinful condition and to recognize that your sin has separated you from the very thing you've been created for, and that is a relationship with God. But that God loved you so much, but unable to overlook his righteousness or ignore his righteousness or his sin, but he, your sin, but he loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world 
who's the only one who could ever pay the satisfying payment that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the only payment for the forgiveness of our sins that allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. Paul's going to spend three chapters establishing uh, our guilt, every one of us, before God as sinners. Uh, But maybe today is all that uh, some of us need for that to happen. Uh, You say, all right, verse 18 makes me already want to cry uncle before God and to become a Christian today. And immediately after our service, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front that they would love to pray with you to begin that personal relationship with God and to have the wrath of God toward his sin, uh, your sin, to be lifted off of your life and to come into the relationship with him that he longs to have uh, with you. I think that for those of us who are Christians here this morning, this message is in no way anything. It's not a downer or anything like that. But I think the reminder of the wrath of God is a a cause for great joy and for worship. And to be reminded of the fact that we will never, ever know his wrath. We will never be exposed to it. The righteous wrath that your sin and my sin deserved, that has been completely removed from our lives. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to give it a second thought in life. Imagine living, having to live life under the dread of not only working through the hardship of this life, but under the dread of a coming judgment. One day, that, uh, and, and the weight of that, and all of that has been lifted off of us as Christians, and it is a significant weight. And to realize that one day when we stand before Jesus, he will greet us as our Savior and not as our judge. And that is a very significant thing and a great thing to have resolved related to our lives and certainly concerning our spiritual health, but also concerning our physical health, our mental and emotional health as well. Hallelujah. One day we will see him face to face And he will stand there, not as our judge, but as our Savior. It's something to be thankful for. And one day when we stand on that glassy sea and we see what we have been saved both from and saved into with a clarity that we will never possess in this life, we will be more thankful than ever. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we glory in the description of yourself that is found in your word. And we acknowledge that it is absolutely perfect. There is nothing about you that we would change, Lord, with the knowledge that if we changed even the smallest thing about you, the consequences and the impact in all directions would be immense 
and unspeakably detrimental. Thank you, Lord, for your righteousness and even the wrath that comes out of that righteousness. But thank you, Lord, that in understanding this about you and that you could never violate this side of you, that you found a way in your love and in your grace to provide an escape from the righteous judgment that each one of us are due. We praise you this morning for that Savior and that salvation that you have provided to us. We bless you for your grace. We bless you for your love. We bless you for our salvation this morning and the sacrifice behind it. And we bless you in the name of the one who has made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.